This episode of Give It To Me Stat is proudly brought to you by BOQ Specialist, a market leader within the Australian medical finance space. They also have a podcast channel called Check Up by BOQ Specialist. Be sure to subscribe. Their first episode is well worth a listen as they delve into what to expect from your internship year. Have you ever wondered what it takes to be on the front lines of healthcare? Maybe you've always been interested in finding out what's the weirdest case that doctors have encountered in the ED. Or maybe you just have a passing interest in medicine. Either way, this podcast is for you. The Adelaide Student Society of Critical Care is proud to present Give It To Me Stat, a series where we explore the field of emergency medicine. So regardless of whether you're a final year med student or someone who's still in high school deciding if healthcare is something you want to pursue, you can learn something new every episode while also being entertained along the way. Do you have any questions you'd like to ask our guests? Let us know on our website at teamassc.org, where you can also find interesting articles, upcoming events, as well as timestamps for these podcast episodes. Now, without any further ado, let's get right into it. I'm your host, Lochin Kodali, a second-year med student at the University of Adelaide, and I'm proud to introduce our very first guest, Dr. Irene Moyer, an emergency medicine registrar and simulation fellow working at the Royal Adelaide Hospital. Thank you so much for being here, Irene. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Do you want to introduce yourself a bit to our guests? Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm an emergency registrar. I'm an advanced trainee, uh, which means I'm coming up close to the end of my training. Uh, I also work at MedStar uh, just casually. Uh, I do shifts every now and again, and I've previously worked in MedStar on a full-time basis as part of one of my rotations, which I really enjoyed. Um, And like you mentioned, I'm the Sim Fellow. I've just finished a year of simulation medicine at the University of Adelaide uh, as part of my training. Um, congrats on almost completing your very long journey. Yeah, thanks. Um, so can you tell us a bit more about your journey from university to where you are today? Yeah, sure. So I was uh, a scientist originally. Uh, so I did an undergrad in science and was a researcher. Uh, and after doing my honours degree, was a bit lost as to what I should do next. I uh, was about to embark on a PhD uh, in Sweden, of all places. Um, <laughs> When I realised I really enjoyed and I missed working with people, and that's something that I wasn't getting from science, um, so I applied uh, for medicine. I sat the GAMSAT exam mm-hmm. um, and uh, didn't think it had gone very well, but it turns out I passed. I went and studied medicine at UQ, mm-hmm. University of Queensland in Brisbane. Okay. Um, and so that was a postgraduate course, so I did four years of medicine, and then um I was a bit sick of Brisbane and the humidity and so went for a complete uh, weather change and we moved to Hobart. Uh, So I did my internship uh, residency and first couple of years as a registrar in Hobart, which was lovely. It was very, very nice. Um, I recommend it to anyone. Uh, And so I did intern year in Hobart and then I did a residency in acute care. Uh, which was a program that they had for people that were interested in sort of critical care, mm-hmm. um, which included doing rotations in ED, um, some ICU. Uh, anesthetics was very difficult to get as a resident, um, mm-hmm. so that wasn't offered, um, but you could do some surgical terms if you wanted. So I did plastic surgery in that. Okay. Um, and for a little while, I thought about doing uh, surgery, uh, but uh, it seemed like a very uh, uphill process and I didn't really think I... Uh, had it in me or enjoyed um, spending 
as much time in theatre or on call as you needed. Um, and I really enjoyed my ED term in my residency. So I applied for ED training in my third year out, which is mm-hmm. quite unusual. Most people apply a little bit further down um, the line after they've been residents for a little bit longer or registrars. Um, so I got into training and I sat my first lot of exams uh, for emergency medicine in my third year. Uh, so it became an advanced trainee by my fourth year out, which was probably a little bit fast. I think uh, if I had my way again, I probably would have taken a bit more time uh, to get to that point. Um, yeah. So. That sounds very impressive. <laughs> oh. um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so what made you want to come to Adelaide of all places? Yes, yeah, so my, my parents are based here and my brother, and so it was an opportunity to come and spend some time with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was also very keen on working with MedStar and the... And retrieval service and uh, so that was one of the the main reasons um, and also just a change of scenery I guess and the hospitals here have a good reputation so yeah it came about five years ago cool it's definitely a lovely place um okay so you definitely seem like you've had a bit more experience than most students would have you've been a scientist before then you decided to get into medicine you've tried acute care and now you're specializing in emergency medicine now can you tell us a bit more about your decision to get into emergency medicine yeah and it's always tough I think a tough process to choose what specialty and Mm -hmm. I feel like it's the million dollar question (laughs) you get into medical school and everyone asks you you know already in medical school what do you want to do what do you want to specialize Mm -hmm. Um, for me uh, I really liked the human aspect, the social aspect of emergency medicine. Mm -hmm. I think I find that very attractive. Um, But like anything, and I think you'll all come across this, it often is uh, the people that you meet that influence you um, and often shape the choices that you make throughout Mm -hmm. your careers. Um, Certainly I felt that way about surgery. I I think I had very lovely bosses that I met when I was doing surgical um, residency and they influenced probably my decision to want to do surgery uh, initially. And then uh, when I went to ED, the bosses that I worked with and the director of the emergency department at the time um, at the Royal Hobart was very supportive. Uh, it was a great environment. Um, you got to see patients. You got to make decisions. You got to do a lot of procedures that I hadn't encountered in other um, rotations that I'd mm-hmm. done where it was a lot of role ward-based sure. um, jobs. So I think that was mostly what attracted me to emergency mm. medicine. The fact that emergency medicine is a bit more hands-on yeah, as certainly. to other specialties. Yeah, certainly. And is this something you realized when you were in your final years of med school or was this something even after you did your internship you were still deciding? Yeah, I don't think uh, I really saw emergency medicine as a possibility uh, until really internship. Mm-hmm. I didn't feel as a student that I got a very good grasp on what emergency medicine was. Mm-hmm. Um so there were a lot of students in my medical school. There was about 400 in my year. And so um, getting a good chunk of time and seeing patients and being able to do things in ED was really not very possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't really feel like I've got a sense of what emergency medicine was as a student. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as an intern, you have to do it. And I think um, that's where I gained an appreciation and mm-hmm. real love for it. So. That's very understandable. And touching a bit more about student experiences, would you recommend to the students who are focused in emergency medicine to go towards a rural placement or something in the city if they really want to gain more experience with emergency medicine as a field? Yeah, look, I have. I really enjoyed uh, 
being in a smaller hospital mm-hmm. for my internship. So the Royal Hobart is a very special place because it has all of the specialties, but it has um, the beauty of being quite a small hospital. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get exposed to everything, but you still um, everyone gets to know you because there's not that many uh, interns mm-hmm. or students. Um, so we got to know our students. Um, so I would recommend certainly rural hospitals or some of the smaller hospitals. Um, you might get a bit more of an experience. Um, and then certainly uh, things like um, how I met you initially. So volunteering at courses and finding out about uh, events that are going on um, is an excellent way to try and get involved and see, you know, getting involved in their teaching sessions where you mm-hmm. can um, is also a great way to see what the specialty is about. Um, so one of the things you do in addition to emergency medicine is you're a fellow in simulation medicine. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't think students have much experience with this field, so could you please explain to our viewer, to our listeners what emer- simulation medicine is? Yeah, sure. So simulation is really taking off, uh, and I'm sure um, you you guys will feel it in your uh, lifetime as students and as doctors that simulation is uh, one of the key tools that we use in education at the moment. Um, So simulation medicine is, uh, I guess, almost like a rehearsal of medicine in a way um, where you learn by doing, okay, Mm -hmm. and you learn um, by doing but not only by having to make those decisions um, and having a feel um, for what those experiences will feel like um, in real life. Uh, so then when you get to a stressful situation with a patient, you already know how to react or you've got that muscle memory or you've encountered that problem or those thought processes before. I think there's maybe a misconception about simulation medicine in that um, people think you need to have you know, these amazing facilities and amazing manne- mannequins that talk and breathe and do all sorts of things or very mm-hmm. realistic things um that's not true you know simulation can just be sitting down with someone and talking through a case uh, and being you know thinking what if what if this happened what would we do okay mm-hmm. and what equipment would we need and how would we do it and what kind of problems will we encounter and having sort of like a mental rehearsal of things mm-hmm. through to the very complex of having you know uh anesthetic machines that are connected to mannequins that breathe and do you know interact um, the with the user um, but you can sit by some equipment and go through some equipment and learn how to use it and I guess that's simulation in a way um, and so this year for me has been about a learning how to um, set up simulations to mm-hmm. teach students but also how to give people feedback um, okay. which is a really important part um, to learning, uh, so getting pointers and how to give those um, that kind of feedback in a constructive, supportive way mm-hmm. um, has been super helpful. Um, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like a really good experience for students to help gain more confidence in their skills. Yeah, definitely. absolutely. And you see, you see students grow, and mm-hmm. um, you certainly. Uh, see students in their first couple of years when they're first exposed to simulation and then at the end of their training in their final years mm-hmm. where they're so used to doing simulation that they um, interact really naturally mm-hmm. and it really feels like a normal uh, scenario for them, mm-hmm. um, which is great. It's great to see that students really engage and really buy into the process mm-hmm. um, and I guess that takes time. So yeah, as a teacher, that must be a completely fulfilling experience. Yeah, it's very rewarding. Yeah. yeah, certainly teaching is always very rewarding. Yeah. And-
Do you find that emergency medicine is more academic focused in the sense that you're mostly teaching students or do you find yourself teaching registrars and consultants sure. too? So everything, yeah. So we teach um, mm. here at the, because it's a university-based job, a lot of the stuff that you do is um, mm. teaching uh, nursing students, allied health students, and then also um, medical students. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we also teach postgrad nurses, so we do a lot of postgrad things with the nursing staff, particularly in uh, emergency and critical mm-hmm. care. Uh, we also teach courses like ALS two mm-hmm. um, and ALS one, um, which is the advanced life support. So, um, as a doctor, you need to have uh, and you have to attend an ALS two course if you work in critical care um, every two years. Wow. Or two to four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so every doctor has to do that that's going to work in critical care um, every couple of years. So we provide those courses. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm an instructor on those courses and help. And that's all very simulation-based. So it's lectures, then mm-hmm. followed by practising skills mm-hmm. using simulation. So. I'm sure the students who thought they'd be done with lectures and exams are going to be disappointed to hear that. No, it's, it, it, they're actually fantastic courses. Okay. And it, uh, mm-hmm. most people really enjoy doing them uh, because it's you know, often they're um, tricky situations that you don't encounter mm-hmm. very often. Right. Um, you know, it's that sort of low frequency but high stress mm-hmm. um, or high risk procedures that we like to, to practice in those courses mm-hmm. so that when we do need to do that procedure, we're well rehearsed in, in mm-hmm. doing them. A bit like the volunteering I did with you where I think it was a bunch of consultants working at the RA who had a course for vascular access. So they were basically trying to gain access to veins using ultrasound or IO drills, which I don't think normally comes up yeah. in the emergency room. Yeah, so um, they're all procedures that um, they may not have done for a while, and okay. some of them would be procedures that are new for mm-hmm. them. Um, everyone's going to have a different skill set depending on you know where they've worked. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those uh, lines that we taught on those courses, most people will have done before, but they may just not have done it for a while, mm-hmm. and some of them um, may have been new. Right. For them. So, um, yeah, just a way for them to practice before they have to do it on a sick patient. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, moving on to our next question. What would you say is the daily workload like as an emergency medicine registrar? And do you think that... Um, I'll let you just answer that for yeah. a second. So, um, the workload in uh, ED varies. It's mm-hmm. usually quite a busy job. Um, very different pace to ward um, jobs. I kind of like the fast pace. They're often busy days. Um, your, your morning shift, your day shift starts at 8 a.m. and you'll often be seeing patients right through until you, know, you finish your shift at 6 p.m. Um, and you'll see one, there'll always be patients waiting to see. So you never get any downtime per se mm-hmm. uh, during your day. Um, and hopefully you get time to sneak in a coffee and maybe a lunch break. Um, the night shifts are a little bit busier um, just because there are no consultants uh, on the floor. Mm-hmm. So, um, you have someone on call that you can call if you need backup, but usually um, we manage just with registrars, residents and interns. We're often supervising uh, a lot of junior doctors mm-hmm. as well as seeing patients, as well as making sure that the flow of the department's working. So they can be quite hectic shifts at times especially if it gets very busy with very sick patients um so yeah busy busy work environment busy work environment i'm sure that's what draws a lot of people towards this field actually Um, yeah i think it also terrifies a lot of people there are some people people that work in um 
different environments or on the ward uh, sometimes come to ED and it can be a bit of an overwhelming place because mm-hmm. it's very fast-paced, there's lots of alarms, there's lots of people, there's lots of noise, there's lots of movement uh, and that can become, I think, a bit overwhelming, especially as a junior doctor. Mm-hmm. If you work in a big emergency department, that can, I think, be a little bit intimidating. Uh, but the good thing is once you finish, you hand over your patients and you go home. You don't really have to... You will always think about your patients, but um, you know you don't ever get called back, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and touching a bit more about your schedule, do you um, how how are you allocated day shifts and night shifts in a given week? As uh, so someone does your roster, so mm-hmm. usually um, nights uh, you do for a month. Okay. Um, and then the rest are combinations of day shifts and. Um, Midi shifts, which start at 10 a.m. and finish at 8 p.m., okay. uh, and evening shifts, which start at 2 and finish at midnight. Mm-hmm. Um, so you usually get a range of those. Mm-hmm. Um, you tend to get more evenings uh, than day shifts, but I think it depends on the balance of the roster. So if you have lots of senior people, mm-hmm. lots of junior people, because obviously we need to ensure that we cover all bases in the department. That makes sense. And... As you're also pursuing a simulation fellowship, do you find that that takes up extra time or are you able to balance it out with your emergency medicine workload? Yes, it's a a fellowship. uh, The fellowship lasts for a year. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is my last week in the fellowship. And how it's worked is I do one week on at the university Mm -hmm. uh, and one week at the hospital. So it's week on, week off. Okay. So I am 0.5 here at the university and then 0.5 at the hospital. Um, and there's also another simulation fellow that works uh, on the days, on the weeks that I'm at the hospital. Mm-hmm. They do the other week. Thank you for answering that. Yes. And I guess many people would say emergency medicine is one of the more stressful and time-consuming um, specialties. Would you say that that's the case? And if so, what would you recommend for a good balance between work and family? Yeah, wow, there's a lot in that. Look, um. Emergency is uh, relatively long uh, specialty training Mm because there's a lot to get in. Um, So I think about five years uh, full-time and there's two lots of exams. So there's the primary exams, uh, which compose of written exams and uh, um, fivers. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you have your exit exams, which are the fellowship exams, uh, which are the ones that I'm preparing for at the moment. And they're also written. And then you have OSCEs Mm -hmm. at the end. Um, and then in between there, you have to do some pediatric training. You have to do some uh, ICU or anaesthetics mm-hmm. or both. Um, and then you can do some other special skill, like my special skills are retrieval medicine and simulation medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the, the training process. Now, you can stretch that out. I've stretched that over a couple more years. So it's been not five years. I think I'm coming up to seven years mm-hmm. um, just because I've taken some time off to travel and then to have kids and those sorts of things. In terms of um, work-life balance, I think throughout your medical degree and throughout your medical careers, you should strive to have something else aside from medicine. Medicine's very consuming um, and it can become a main focus of your life and it's very hard to find room for anything else. But I think it's um, certainly the people that I find have the best work-life balances are those people that have hobbies outside of medicine whether it's sport you know whether you swim you cycle um you you know 
play for a team uh, or you go and do some outdoors stuff or you like to travel or art or musical instruments, something that takes you outside of medicine, um, I find helps find a bit more balance in your life. Um, and yeah, the rest I think we all just struggle with. We do our best. There are times in your life where you have a very good work-life balance mm-hmm. um, and uh, there are times during exams where it all just feels very hard <laughs> and Fair that's enough. okay because yeah. it's only for a set amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the flexibility with emergency medicine is that there's a possibility to not work full-time because you don't have a, a patient load per se. Mm-hmm. So you can easily change your hours. Um, I guess the downside to emergency medicine is that it's shift work. Right. Um, and so for some people that can be quite difficult especially night shifts yeah doing night shifts and things with children can be a bit tricky Mm -hmm. um certainly if your partner is also (laughs) medical Mm -hmm. um that can be a bit tricky i'm lucky because i have a non-medical partner Mm -hmm. uh, and so that helps me uh it not be so stressful during night shifts and evening shifts because i know Mm -hmm. there'll always be someone home but to make it work I think that's particularly great advice what you said about having hobbies outside medicine. I know I'm only a second year med student, but I also find myself sometimes just stuck in the entire thing because it's just so fascinating to me. But I also need to find times where I just go for a run or read a book, just give myself a bit of a healthy break. So to all the students out there, I'm sure having hobbies outside medicine will go a long way, not just throughout med school, but throughout their careers yeah yeah Mm -hmm. i totally agree and for mental health especially Mm -hmm. very important to give yourself a bit of a break from your patients or medicine or just thinking about it Mm -hmm. now are there any subspecialties within emergency medicine um and what exactly does do they involve yeah so it's quite common now to have a subspecialty or a niche that Mm -hmm. you're interested in um in emergency medicine um so there's uh guess several more common ones um, mm-hmm. that exist throughout emergency medicine um, and that's ultrasonography so uh, as you know ultrasound is becoming more and more relevant and mm-hmm. we use it every day more and more and now with the introduction of these handheld probes you know, ultrasound is really taking over how we do things and how we examine our patients and um, so there's uh, fellowships in lots of different hospitals and I think the RA starting to try and uh, set one up and um, and I think the Lyle Mac might have an ultrasound fellowship, but I'm not entirely sure. But, yeah, certainly mm-hmm. there are people um, who specialise in ultrasonography who are really good um, and educate the department and help um, sort of run ultrasound stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, toxicology is another really main common subspecialty within emergency medicine. Mm-hmm. And there's different diplomas and um, extra training that you can do for um, both ultrasonography and toxicology. Um, So we have a a specialty unit uh, at the Royal Adelaide Mm -hmm. in toxicology, and there's um, this is the first year that they have a fellow uh, doing toxicology. Mm -hmm. So that'll be one of the senior registrars um, who just does six months or 12 months just specialising and looking after the toxicology patients. Mm -hmm. Um, What other ones? Uh, Trauma. Trauma depends how hospitals are set up, but generally there's a sort of a a shared, like a collaboration between the surgical teams and ED. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a trauma fellowship as well at the Royal Adelaide. Um, So that's a subspecialty you can do as as a senior registrar. Um, And then you can, when you're a consultant, sort of work in that area within the department. Mm -hmm. Um, 
think they're sort of the main ones. There are some people that might be uh, interested in sort of infectious diseases mm-hmm. or those more niche things. fields. Yeah, yeah, within ED, but that's a bit less common. And depends on the hospital. Depends on what you see as well. Mm-hmm. Um, globally, there's uh, what I find really fascinating is. Um, Global emergency medicine. Okay. What exactly does that involve? Yeah. So it's um, it's big in the US, mm-hmm. not so big in Australia, um, but it involves emergency medicine sort of in resource poor um, kind of environments mm-hmm. um, and also includes things like pre-hospital and um, disaster management mm-hmm. and it's sort of global or public health approach on emergency mm-hmm. medicine, um, which I find very attractive. So a lot more triaging, um, taking care of patients with minimal resources, yeah. and trying to figure out which patients to give those resources to, and also how to do stuff with that. I'm guessing, many, much equipment. Yeah. So it's a yeah, it's a I guess a different way of mm-hmm. viewing the most patients or the the greater good, which is a bit mm-hmm. of how you would um, I guess treat disasters and public right. health crises. Definitely different to the experience, I'm guessing, you have at the city. Yeah, yeah. In a well-funded public hospital. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. More, It would be more similar, I guess, to rural and remote medicine. Mm -hmm. Well, that's just something people interested in can pursue. Um, Now, coming back to students, how can students gain more experience or solidify their interest from an early stage? I know most students don't actually have an ED experience until their fourth or fifth year, Mm. but is there any opportunity for students to get involved at an earlier stage maybe? Yeah, so certainly um, things like critical care societies are fantastic and I commend you on the work that you guys do um, in getting people involved and interested um, in critical care. Mm -hmm. Also, can be a bit daunting sometimes, mm-hmm. but uh, just meeting people and chatting to people um, within the specialty that you're interested in and seeing whether you can come in on weekends or on, you know, um, night shifts, times where it's uh, perhaps not so busy that the department's overwhelmed mm-hmm. by your, your presence, but um, where you can kind of add um, or tag someone along and, and see. Um as we were talking about earlier, volunteering at things. So if you um, find out about events or they need, particularly for ultrasound training where they need models, mm-hmm. um, it's really helpful as a student to attend because you are exposed to all the teaching mm-hmm. um, as you're a model, as you've found out. Um, or even uh, exams, they often need people to help run things or, um, you know, chaperone, uh, you know, one mm-hmm. candidate from one place to another, mm-hmm. and that often allows you to um, sit in the with. exam. Yeah, yeah. we'll talk to those people or mm-hmm. see what it's like um, for that training process. Certainly, we do it a lot as uh, registrars. Mm-hmm. We'll often sit in on other people's exams to or practice exams, certainly not the, the real exam, but for trial exams, we'll try and sit trial exams or um, sit in on people's um, OSCE exams, for example, their practice ones, so that we can see how different people, what different people's techniques or what, mm-hmm. what's involved. Um, so there's a big culture of doing that sort of thing in medicine already established. Mm-hmm. So you just need to tap into it by chatting to people and seeing where those opportunities mm-hmm. exist. Um, um, speaking from personal experience, I definitely recommend any students who are particularly visual learners to just go out and try being an SP. I definitely find it much easier to remember stuff than just reading from an anatomical textbook or just watching tons of lectures it yeah just absolutely way easier for me yeah um i think also just being generally in- engaged mm-hmm. so 
there's nothing more disheartening than having a student that's not engaged uh, because it makes it very hard for you. It almost doubles your workload trying to engage them in doing things. Um, whereas if you have someone who's enthusiastic or who offers to do things or who uh, you know, has read things up or is clearly thinking about the patient or is engaged, mm-hmm. um, it's a lot more rewarding for both people uh, and you're also more likely to give that person extra work or show them interesting things or mm-hmm. if the opportunity to suture someone comes up, whether you're going to find that student and you're going to try and get them or you know, you're going to present them, you know, introduce them to the, um, to the senior nurse mm-hmm. who will find them lots of jobs to do, <laughs> like putting in cannulas and mm-hmm. catheters and things. Whereas if you find a student who's on their phone or not really interacting very much, it's very difficult to... Right. Right. Yeah. I'm sure there are tons of things students can help out with at hospitals too. Yeah, right? absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, as an emergency registrar, are there times where you have to go out into the field? Does that come under MedStar particularly? Yeah. So um, the way that uh, the hospitals are set up here in South Australia and mm-hmm. in Tasmania and in um, Brisbane, um, you don't leave the hospital okay. uh, unless you're working for a retrieval service. Mm-hmm. So in the past, it has been that the doctors that work in the hospital would also go out with the patients if they needed to be transferred to another hospital. Mm-hmm. And some paediatric units still work like that around Australia. Um, but generally in the adult service uh, or adult land, um, we uh, have a se- separate service. Mm-hmm. So um, when I work with MedStar, it's an entirely different um, mm-hmm. setup. So... Um, MedStar's run by the ambulance service. Okay. Okay, so it's a branch of the ambulance service. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I work, when I work, I work there, I don't work for the hospital. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm based at a base in the airport mm-hmm. uh, and we get all our taskings through the ambulance service mm-hmm. um, and we take the patients to the hospital and then we go back to our base. Mm-hmm. So we're not really. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the type of patients where you have to pick up? from a trauma incident to the hospital? Like, why exactly would we need a doctor at that kind of a situation? Yeah, so um, particularly with traumas, Mm -hmm. um, you have sort of this golden hour that they talk about where uh, you can make the most difference to that patient's mortality. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we find uh, by sending a doctor, you're taking the services to the patient, Mm -hmm. okay, and you're initiating treatment from the moment that the team arrives rather than having to transport that patient to somewhere and particularly lose, you know, potentially losing time in that transport where they could be getting, uh, they may need to be intubated, mm-hmm. they may need blood products, uh, they need to be kept warm. Um, so all those sorts of things that we can add so that by the time they arrive to the hospital, mm-hmm. the process of resuscitation has already commenced. Right. It's like a mini hospital out in the field, yeah. basically. Um, the key in trauma management generally is mm-hmm. to try and get them to definitive care as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So we certainly don't dilly-dally at the scene trying right. to you know, optimise the patient and get them you know, as resuscitated as possible. Mm-hmm. We still try and have a shorter scene time as we can whilst trying to make the patient as safe as possible. Right. Okay. So um, it's not a matter of yeah sitting mm-hmm. and setting up for a tube and, you know, putting in a chest drain and an arterial line and a central line. You know, we, we try and do things as quickly as we can and we only do the things that we feel are necessary uh, and will improve the patient outcomes. 
Well, it sounds like a very intense but also exciting field to work in. Yeah, I really uh, have to say I really, really enjoy retrieval work. Uh, I enjoy the challenge of it. It was a, a very steep learning curve, mm-hmm. um, but uh, it's it was very fun as well. And I met some amazing people that mm-hmm. are really good at their jobs um, whilst doing it. So it was great. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, Do you, um, is there any advice you would tell yourself? The younger version of yourself before you started emergency medicine? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think uh, I alluded to it a little bit earlier. I think I would have spent um, a few more years uh, being a resident mm-hmm. or a junior registrar and covered lots of different specialties. So I would have liked to do a bit of you know, orthopedics, a little bit more gen med, a mm-hmm. little bit more um, ENT, you know, those type of specialties where you kind of pick up by osmosis um, mm-hmm. how to do things uh, when you're doing that job as a, a war job or as a junior doctor because I find having that um, general basis or like a few more years of general work, mm-hmm. board work, um, would have been beneficial later down the track in ED because once you get into ED training, mm-hmm. you kind of go through the motions and jump through the hoops and it's a little bit harder to get out to do that orthopedic rotation or that plastic surgery rotation mm-hmm. or get into theatres. Mm-hmm. Um, so I encourage people to not try and jump into a training program too quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be certainly true for any specialty that you choose. If you just spend those first few years just getting a bit of a general um, you pick up so much. Every term you do, you're going to learn so much. Um, there's always time to specialise later down the track, mm-hmm. but it's always harder going back. That definitely makes sense. Yeah. Um, now, one of our more fun questions, um, what is the most interesting or weirdest case you've had over your career? Yeah, it's really uh, it's really hard to pinpoint a particular case, mm-hmm. especially like the weird... Uh, and wonderful ones, and you often find when people from emergency medicine get together, mm-hmm. the story topping <laughs> happens, and you start getting, you know, um, and it's just our way of, I guess, debriefing about patient cases. Mm-hmm. But to be honest, the cases that really stick in my mind are the ones that you've had uh, a real connection with the family or with okay. the, the the patient, mm-hmm. um, whether that be you know someone who passed away and you had mm-hmm. a, a really nice death where you able to help the family through the dying process and mm-hmm. you get quite close to the family through to, you know, the first time that you do anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I still remember the first tube that I did on the side of the road with Ben Star, my first tube that I ever did on my own mm-hmm. in ED. So those sorts of firsts uh, really, you know, your first patient that dies really stay with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there's always like the, you know, when you send off a test, that you don't think is going to come back positive and mm-hmm. it does come back positive. I had recent one for syphilis, which I thought there was no way that skin rash could be syphilis, but I was studying for my exams and I thought, well, why not? And, uh, you know, there was enough in the mm-hmm. history to suggest it could be something. So you get mm-hmm. back a uh, positive result. That's always interesting. But, um, yeah, it's hard to pinpoint the one case. Uh, really, it's um, yeah, the ones that you get emotionally involved in that really mm-hmm. stick with you. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of us will have that going forward. Yeah. Um, now, one of the questions I actually forgot to ask you earlier was regarding you choosing to do emergency medicine. You mentioned that it was during your internship residency phase where you were still trying out different things, yeah. and it was the bosses at the 
emergency medicine department that particularly gravitated you towards it. Yeah. Now, was there any one particular moment where you thought, okay, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life? Or did you find it was more of a gradual thing over a couple of months? Uh, I think probably my internship, I was interested. Mm -hmm. uh, and then in my residency, um, it kind of solidified that I wanted to do emergency training. And I think a lot of it that had to do with it was the teaching as well. Mm -hmm. So emergency uh, medicine often has quite structured teaching. A lot of the critical care services, so I know anaesthetics and ICU also do, but it was really nice to be part of, you know, being in a department that gave you teaching, several mm -hmm. hours of teaching and, like, taught you procedures and skills and, you know, if there was something interesting uh, happening in the department, someone would always come and find you and show you and people seem to be very invested in your development mm -hmm. um, and I really liked that and I think that and the kind of social side that we spoke about earlier made it, yeah, solidified it for me. I think mm -hmm. that was my second year out, so PGY2, mm -hmm. so and I was a resident. Yeah, that so. definitely sounds like a great experience. Yeah. Um, now, one of the last questions I want to ask you is, earlier this year with COVID in full swing, we went into lockdown sometime in April. Um, a lot of things that is documented in the news is what hospitals did, um, how we're coping with the changes, but I just wanted to get a bit more on your personal thoughts on how you felt during that time, considering it was very uncertain, and I'm sure it must have been scary for you being on the front lines. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, last year was a very bizarre year, um, and I think it, it all, everything seemed to happen very fast. So mm -hmm. I think from when the first sort of cases started arriving in Australia and once we started to see what was happening around the world, I think certainly the expectation was that things were going to get really um, out of control. It, mm -hmm. it felt like things were about we were about to enter into sort of disaster mode, or like mm -hmm. a um, felt like there was a tsunami of patients coming, mm -hmm. and that tsunami just never arrived. So it was a very unsettling time, I think, for everyone in the department because you're um, every day you know go to work and you'd be amped up, thinking that today was going to be the day and it's really hard to sustain that level of stress in a mm -hmm. way. And I think uh, we're kind of starting to feel, you know, th that staff fatigue now mm -hmm. because everyone's had such a big year of being so invested in, you know, what was going to happen with COVID. Mm -hmm. Certainly um, it was overwhelming imagining that that was going to happen as someone who's got a young family, mm -hmm. um, how that was going to affect. And there was talk about... Um, putting the doctors up in the front line in hotels. Mm -hmm. So there was we were looking at potentially spending time completely separate from our families, which mm -hmm. was really hard. I certainly stopped seeing my parents because uh, being in the hospital, I wasn't sure if I was being exposed or not. So that was, that was a bit of a tricky part. And then also um, being part-time at the university with teaching, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of uncertainty regarding teaching happened and the university right. went into close down, um, which freed me up to spend a bit more time in the hospital preparing. Mm -hmm. um, so I wasn't directly involved with the COVID work group, um, but I was involved with putting the registrars, um, our senior registrars, through uh, intubation training. So mm -hmm. we used simulation to train all of our staff um, to intubate, uh, like the different um, things that we had to do to intubate people with COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were putting through all of the registrars um, in the entire department uh, that had airway skills um, in doing that. Um, so that was a great project to be involved in. Um, and we uh, wrote a paper on it, mm -hmm. um, which is, we're still working on getting published. And 
Um, also, we worked as part of the university, which we were very keen on training our students on how to use PPE, especially if our students were going to be uh, ever working in the hospital during um, time of COVID. Uh, we put together some videos on PPE and hand washing and the different masks and how to put um, different masks on and different um, gowns and mm. what proportions you needed for what. Um, and we did that in collaboration with the Infectious uh, Diseases Unit of um or infection control, sorry, uh, unit at the Royal Adelaide. Mm -hmm. So it was a collaboration um, between uh, myself, the university, and them. Um, and those videos uh, had huge success, and um, we made them public access, uh, like open access via Vimeo. Um, and we can trace back with Vimeo uh, where those videos have been seen, and they've mm -hmm. been seen in over 50 countries. And mm -hmm. um, the CDC has taken them on, and um, Jana Briggs Institute has taken them on. So mm -hmm. they've had uh, huge success. So it was nice to be able to contribute from a public health mm -hmm. point of view to the COVID effort mm -hmm. um, which never felt like it really hit very hard in Adelaide so that was um, good. That's really great to hear I'm sure most of the healthcare students have seen at least one of your videos okay, and um, I guess that just goes to show how stringent we were with our COVID measures because you look at countries like the US and UK where what you've mentioned doctors staying in hospitals being away from families that's what's happening right now even one year later but here we are thankfully not in the midst of that tsunami that never came basically yeah it, we're extremely lucky mm -hmm. and uh it's very difficult i still um there's a, a lots of podcasts out there and interviews with mm -hmm. doctors uh working in the uk and in the us and um places that are particularly hard hit and i can't bring myself to listen to them if i'm honest because mm -hmm. i just it's quite disturbing Right. And I'm sure that they'll all be traumatized for the rest, the rest of, of their lives. Yeah. yeah, it's a one in a lifetime, hopefully, yeah. um, experience for them. Mm -hmm. Well, hopefully, we're on the track to something better now. Yes, 2021. <laughs> um, now, you, uh, before we started this podcast, you actually mentioned that you were on a podcast recently with Adam Montague, who I believe teaches at the university. Yeah, so Adam Montague is the director of the simulations, the Adelaide mm -hmm. Health and Simulation Centre. Um, and he uh, and I, but this is uh, Adam's baby, um, set up a podcast where we interview people. Uh, it's aimed at medical students and we interview different uh, people working in the hospital explaining for example, code stroke. So mm -hmm. we interviewed one of the stroke nurses and they go through, um, I guess, what it means to be a stroke nurse and how they got to their career, but also um, what a code stroke is, who comes, why we call it. Um, mm -hmm. And we interviewed uh, another um, a cardiologist about code STEMIs and um, a little bit about their life as a cardiologist, but then mm -hmm. um, also who comes when you call a code STEMI and those mm -hmm. sorts of things. So I'll make sure I pass on the link for that. And sure, uh, we'll definitely have that up listen. on our website. Yeah. And it sounds to me that's more talking about the technical aspect of medicine. So yeah. it would definitely be geared towards the older year med students. Who yeah, yeah, I think that's an alternative form of education. Yeah. So yeah, thank you so much for that. No, no worries. Um, that's all the questions I've had. Thank you so much for being here, Irene. No it's worries. It's been my pleasure. If anyone has any questions, I'm happy to be contacted. Mm -hmm. um, if anyone wants to have a chat about a career in ED and mm -hmm. retrieval medicine, happy to have a chat. Mm -hmm. We'll definitely make all that information accessible. And thank you guys so much for listening. If you like listening to that, feel free to check out our website at teamasscc.org where you can leave some feedback, 
ask questions that may be featured in our next episodes, and also find some interesting articles along the way. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep up to date with all the exciting events we've got planned for you this year.